0: Ignition sequence start, six,
1: five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engines running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. All right, welcome to the Launchpad Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. Well, howdy, partner.
0: <laughs> we are going a little against type today, although not really, because and dude, I don't think people give us enough credit for knowing like film in general. Like everyone yeah. knows us as horror nerds or, or Star Wars nerds or shitty movie nerds. But like Erin and I, not that going to film school necessarily means anything, but we went to film school, we took that shit seriously, and like we watch a lot of movies, we study a lot of this shit. So today we're gonna hit something that we normally don't really talk about much. It usually doesn't get talked about much in general at all.
1: Darn Tootin' Roomy today. We're talking about the Western movie. Yeah.
0: Just so you guys know, <laughs> he literally pantomimes six shooters in the air during that.
1: Wicky <laughs> 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 wiki wow wow wiki wow west. We're gonna hit <laughs> westerns, and this is something that's crazy because Matt and I have been friends for years, well over a decade. We've been friends, right? And we have mm-hmm. never talked about westerns, and to find out that it was not only like maybe your fa- like third favorite subgenre, or, like second favorite subgenre, and it's mine too, and it's like how have we never done westerns?
0: I don't like we lived together for a while. Do you remember ever watching a Western together? The 310 to Yuma remake, we went and saw that together. In the theaters, right?
1: Yeah, we went and saw it in the movie theater, yeah. And I think we talked about it, but we weren't like, oh yeah, what about this? Ooh, what about that? But like, when you were hitting me with some of the ones you wanted to talk about today, and it's like, fuck yes, this is going to be a great conversation because I fucking love cowboy movies and I went through a period in college where I would go to Newberry Comics and I would just buy whatever Western DVD I could. I would just buy it and then watch it and then like return it a few days later and then get another
0: one what a dick
1: they knew what I was doing they didn't care
0: <laughs> well westerns is a great genre because there's so much there and when you mine the, the filmmaking of western genre like you start to see a lot of tropes a lot of cinematic things that started in that genre that then carried on to modern filmmaking of across different genres and it also is like it, it's kind of overlooked a lot at least by people in our generation. I think because it is antiquated in many, many respects. And I think you kind of lose sight that like there's a lot of bones there that became movies and TV shows that we watch now owe yeah. a lot to Westerns because they've evolved from the Western, you know?
1: It's interesting because, you know, we've talked about it in the past too, like how when you watch like a James Bond movie and you're like, ooh, that, some of that doesn't age really well. W- Westerns don't age really well either. But the true. themes that they laid out, I think are ingrained in the DNA of American cinema and American storytelling. And our podcast, I mean, we're... We, we neglected a lot, but we are the pulp culture countdown and talking about pulp culture and the idea of like pop culture as as a subgenre of things that came out of pulp novels and came out of comic books. The cowboy was right there from the beginning.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you go back and look at some of these movies, some of these movies go back like all the way to the 30s. The ones that we're going to talk to are the ones that we're going to talk about today are mostly in the 50s and 60s. But like, and, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot before and a lot after that, but you think about the. Technological limitations, the budget limitations that they had in American and Italian cinema in that time, they weren't thinking about making space movies really. They weren't, you know, in the 50s, you certainly had a lot of um, sci fi going on, and it was a lot of radiation with giant versions of stuff, but there wasn't really a lot of model building yet. There wasn't really a lot of other world crafting to a certain extent. I mean, Twilight Zone, and there's a plenty of exceptions, but they weren't really visually changing much. Now, when you think about the genre of a Western, Aesthetically, it's pretty simple, right? The less population you have, the less things you show, the less transportation, the less, you know, domiciles and buildings and structures, the less of that you show, the more it lends to the authenticity of what the genre is, right? So a lot of these mm-hmm. productions could just go somewhere, usually California or elsewhere. California, yeah. And just build a town, right? Whether it's facades or real buildings. You build like seven or eight buildings in the middle of nowhere, and that's all you needed.
1: And and I'll say this, it's more complicated than this. I'm really generalizing here, but you have to almost give Westerns a little bit of the credit for creating the studio system because in early days, all you had to do, like you said, is buy a ranch, build what looks like a shitty Western town, and you're good to go for like 50 or 60 movies.
0: Period. Yeah, and it you know you could reuse those sets. You and it's it's very easy. Like for those of us who've been in the film industry, I've worked in movies in New York City, and it wasn't a period piece, but it was a post-apocalyptic piece. So to like, they had to dress New York City to look like it was twenty years in the future and dilapidated.
1: Come on, drop that name, Rumi. Drop that name. Name <laughs> drop that oh
0: <laughs> I was on I Am Legend, that was when we lived together, Rumi. That was our <laughs> first our first separation trial. Yeah. But like when you make a you make a a, a cowboy movie, you're making it away from everything, so you don't don't have to change cars. You don't have to change, you know, existing structures that are already there. And what's the most populated Western you'd ever seen? Maybe Deadwood? You know, like very yeah. rarely do you have to create a large town. Part of the aesthetic of those those movies are being out in the wilderness, you know, braving the Western frontier. There was only a couple buildings at any of those, those stories. So it was, I think, I don't want to say it was easy and I'm sure those people would sing a different tune than us in the future, but it was yeah. easier to craft those stories because you didn't need as much stuff. You didn't need to get cars from a certain Time, you just built fucking wagons.
1: It was efficient. Like, if you watch the old Shaw Brother, you know, martial arts kung fu movies, they built like one small feudal town. That was all they needed. And right, right. all their movies are shot there. I mean, you mentioned Deadwood. How many movies are you like, what? That's the saloon from Deadwood. Like, they shoot there all the time and they just reuse the sets over and over again. So it was really efficient to shoot these movies. And then we'll we'll get into it later. Just so everybody knows, we're going to break this up into a couple episodes because because there's so much to talk about and we love it. We're not going to release them all at once. We'll pepper them in here and there, but this will be a big three-parter. We'll get into the spaghetti westerns, but at one point, Italy was just like, hey, we're going to start making these movies and they had the infrastructure in, you know, the Italian countryside looked like the American West and they're just like, all right, done. And they built like a couple towns here and there and everything was shot there. It's pretty easy to do, but as with all American genres, it was first done by someone else. So the first (laughs) western film is a British short film from 1899, which is ridiculously old. And it was called Kidnapping by Indians. So xenophobic as well. Hooray.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What year did you say it was?
1: 1899. This was made by Mitchell and Kenton in Blackburn, England in 1899. And it wasn't until 1903, The Great Train Robbery came out. And that was... (laughs) came out twice. We've talked about this in the past. He made the Great Train Robbery and then realized that they hadn't like set up copyright laws yet. So he had to make it again. So he made it like two years in a row. <laughs> Just kept making the Great Train Robbery.
0: The second one was called the Great Train Robbery Requiem. <laughs> Requiem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the Great Train Robbery 2 Dead by Dawn. <laughs> The Great Train Robbery is the first American Western. And you right. know, it's it's a it had Bronco Billy Anderson, who was a famous like old Western sideshow performer or like, you know, a performer, because they used to have traveling shows of like cowboys like shooting shit and throwing axes and bows and arrows firing them at chicks on wheels, you know, whatever you had. That was the, the Great Train Robbery in nineteen oh three was the first American Western. And from there it exploded because, like we said, it was fairly easy to make. And you only need a couple people, a couple horses, and a, a big open plane. You had people like John Ford making them, Howard Hawks, uh, Anthony Mann, they created the genre. And I mean, obviously we could go into hundreds of these movies, but Rumi, where do you want to start? What's the first Western to dive into?
0: Well, oddly enough, it was like, I had just watched a movie the other night because I hadn't seen it in a while and I wanted to revisit it. I felt like it was a good time to watch it. And like almost moments later, you wrote me and were like, Hey, you want to record an episode? This, you know, normally me and Rumi plan like, Hey, let's this weekend talk about this. But a couple days ago you were like, Hey, you want to record this weekend? I got a spot opened up. And I was like, we've been talking about doing westerns for a while, so I just watched this movie. I was like, let's do westerns. And you were immediately on board, which just got me more excited. But I just watched uh, 1953's Shane, starring Alan Ladd. It was directed by George Stevens, who was known for being like a just meticulous director. Just nitpicking details, shooting take after take after take. I mean, there's so many stories specifically about this movie. Him being a total dick. (laughs) One scene had 119 takes. He just had like specific visions of what he wanted this movie to be like and the studio was being you know giving him guff and trying to push him to do faster quicker stuff trying to make quicker shorter edits and he was like nope this is how I want it to be and he just crafted it. When was the last time you saw Shane?
1: I was in college when I saw it so when I was in high school uh, I was you know very involved with uh, the theater I was the president of the thespian society Uh, no no surprise. You guys
0: can't hear my eyes rolling but they're Uh, rolling like crazy.
1: (laughs) But I was really involved and our theater director the guy in charge of a guy named Terry Fox who really supported me like he really pushed me to do better and work in film you know he he really supported me through you know all the stuff that I was doing he was obsessed with this movie and probably referenced it like once a week to the point like yeah I get it Fox I know Shane's a great movie so I finally watched it and you're like damn okay it is a good movie I get it I get
0: it and it is very classic it's got a zillion tropes in it that we've seen not only certainly in the western genre but then forever through film and it's and, and this is not the first time we've seen these tropes they definitely happen in uh, earlier movies they're in samurai there's a lot of uh, crossover or borrowing back and forth between samurai movies from Japan and um, both American and Italian westerns but and we'll we'll definitely get into that this yo, movie yeah. also
1: has a really young Jack Palance in it
0: it does have, and I think it was I think it was his first movie to the point where Jack Palance was not even comfortable riding horses in this movie and there's a famous shot <laughs> where he could not mount the horse so they shot him dismounting the horse and played it in reverse, so it looks like he's actually getting off. Um, but man, that guy's got a face that's a villainous fucking face, man. In 1953, oh. um, it's that's Curly from from uh, City Slickers and City Slickers too. They're Curly's gold. <laughs>
1: Curly's gold. This movie was expensive as fuck for a 1953 movie. This was 3.1 million dollars, and they were producing it to be filmed on a flat widescreen, which is a, a format that Paramount invented uh, because they were trying to compete with television.
0: They were like, oh, this is better than television, yeah. And thank Thanks to George Stevens directing, uh, it, there, that original budget was not $3 million. It pushed because he kept pushing the schedule longer and longer <laughs> yeah. because of how he did things. It took Dick. him a year and a half to edit. So it was actually in the can in early 52, but it didn't come out till mid to late 53. And he just wanted it to be that good. There's actually a pretty cool story that I read that production was getting so fucked that Paramount talked to Howard Hughes about taking the movie. And they were like, listen, we want you to, you know, to work with us on this movie. We want you to take this over because it's taken too long and whatever. He said no. But later he saw the rough cut. And when he saw the rough cut of the movie, he called Paramount back. was like, I changed my mind. I want this. I really want this. And then when Paramount heard Howard Hughes say this, they were like, oh, no, wait, if you want it that badly, it must be good. So it was originally in their, in their lineup for the year, it was going to be like a B movie. They weren't going to plug it a lot. It wasn't going to be one of their tent poles. But when Howard Hughes saw the rough cut and got a boner about it, they said, oh, no, wait, this is going to be one of our bigs for the year, and it led to Oscar nominations. It was, I mean, it's it's on a, it's on every AFI list. AFI's top westerns. It's on AFI's top American movies. It became this huge thing, and it it deserves it. I, it like I said, I just watched it the other night, so it's fresh in my head. It's a yeah. story that is shared by many westerns. You got some farm family. The main character, farmer, he's played by Van uh, Van Heflin, who is in a bunch of movies. Uh, he's been a couple of movies on my list here. He plays a, a ranch a ranch owner who is trying to be kicked off his land by a guy who owns all the surrounding properties, and he start that you know bully. He's starting to fuck you know fuck up people's land, trying to kick this family off, and he's got a little kid and a wife. And Alan Ladd shows up just trying to pass through one day, and he clearly is a ex gunfighter who's trying to leave his past behind him,
1: which is such a classic trope. Every western has the guy escaping his past, but it's
0: cool because it, and we'll talk about this. I think that's a really interesting morality play that I think we as an American audience and certainly a male American audience loved to see. Yeah. Uh, but he's passing through these guys' land. They start talking. He's there and watches some shit go down with the you know, the cat, the bad cattle rustlers coming in trying to kick the people off their land. He takes a job on that farm for the actor Van Heflin and he starts working with them. And there's a couple scenes where like the bad guys are trying to get him into a fight and he's trying so hard to stay out of it and stay reserved. And meanwhile, this little farm kid loves Shane and every
1: Shane, you wouldn't do that with you Shane yeah Shane, that little Shane's kid
0: just uh, he's got such a little band crush on him
1: I know that little kid's hilarious and also like that's such a you know think of all the American movies that have like that little kid taglon like I mean it's, it's fucking Opie from uh, the Andy Griffith show all over the place I mean I also love the whole like how they're trying to goad him into a fight because they know he's an old badass like they know that he can sling a gun and they're just trying to get him to shoot first which is like something that we might not realize now but like in the old western days if you shot first. You could be accused of murder. Like it didn't matter. Like if you threw the punch first, like that's how you started a fight.
0: There's a whole scene in this movie where the bad guys are talking. The bad guy eventually has uh, Jack Palance come in, and he's like their hired gun. and He's a notorious hired gun. Whereas Shane, no one really knows who Shane is yet. They just know he's this mysterious guy working yeah. with the farmers. And Jack Palance specifically is like, "Why don't we just shoot them all?" And the bad guys like, "We can't do that. Well, you know, there's no sheriff in this town. The sheriff is three days ride away." But they. Say we can't just kill anybody. He's like, I'll make it work, and he goads another guy into pulling, and he yep. pulls faster than that guy and sh- shoots him down. And he's just, you know, he's the he's the super heavy in that show.
1: When when Jack Pallant shoots Eliza Cook Jr. in that Elijah yep. Cook yep. Jr. it's one of the first times they used hand pulls to yes. to do a gunshot, and the gunshots in this movie, like you
0: feel them because you for wanna, a couple you reasons. Explain what a hand pull is. Explain what a hand pull. So
1: so a hand pull is when they had a rope tied around him, and literally the rope went to a pulley in the ground and somebody off screen would just yank the rope and just yank them backwards
0: and that simulates the force of getting hit with something they do it all the time stunt rigging it's like a, they call it a stunt pole
1: and and we'll talk about this guy later but sam peckinpah who directed the wild bunch he, oh, yeah. he is specifically quoted as saying when jack Pallant shot elijah cook jr and shane things started to change and the audio that they did for this the director stevens wanted to demonstrate how hardcore guns were and how violent they were and to to Emphasize the power of that. He did these like cannons. He would fire like really big guns into trash cans, and that would be the audio. That's the sound. And the sound in this movie is really important because it sounds so big when they get shot. And You're like, you know, you feel it.
0: And now I just watched this the other day and I noticed that pull because he yeah. goes flying when he gets oh. shot. And yeah, he, he um, launched. It's, it's a beautifully crafted scene because he, what's the actor's Elijah? Uh, Elijah Cook Jr. He is on the ground. Jack Palance is standing in front of a saloon and the saloon is up on rafters a bit so jack palance is automatically taller than cook jr is anyway but he's also standing higher so he automatically has the high ground visually he's more threatening he obviously is in black his face is fucking just really sharp so he yeah. automatically looks like the bad guy he's taller and he blows them away like the way they do it is they both pull their guns out and their guns are out of their holsters and a guy on the on the railing is like i forget what the character's name the character's name was uh to me I think he said don't do it to me and he waits and Jack Palance almost shoots him before he even decides if he's going to finish pulling him on him but he already had his gun out so he's in the you know Jack Palance is in the clear he won't get charged for murder for that but he just hits the ground so hard I noticed I was like man they instructed him to jump back and then when I did some research I saw what you just said about how this was one of the first times where they did a stunt pull and that happens all the time now it's very commonplace and it speaks to something that I've been thinking about while I was prepping for this episode so is, this really is, the Western is the precursor to the action genre, I think, because there's a lot of differences to it, but this is the seed that grew into Die Hard and, you know, Predator and, uh, you know, uh, Rambo.
1: Anything with gunplay. People didn't know how to shoot gunfights back then. Like, th- that's something you have to think about. In The Great Train Robbery, the guy is literally square framed. Like, his shoulders are square to the camera. He aims the gun directly at the camera, goes pow. You see the puff of spoke. It cuts to the guy the guy falls down. It's so rudimentary, it's almost laughable. People did not know how to shoot gunfights. And now when you watch like a John Wick movie and it's like a bullet ballet, the John Woo movies where you're just like, this is incredible. It all started here. This is the blueprint for how to do gunplay in movies. And I, I mean, it's it's amazing to watch them grow and you see as they progress into the 60s, they get more violent, they get more intricate, they get more bloody. And, and like, but this is the first time you saw somebody like, like, take the impact and you saw the impact on screen, basically in the same shot as the person firing, which is
0: wild. And it's cool because I feel like a lot of Westerns, at least in general, are viewed as like hokey and overly moral and, you know, right. Thanks, Roy Rogers. (laughs) But, you know, there are a couple standouts and some more than others, but in this specific movie, this movie is not necessarily taking a stance against violence or trying to show, you know, the double nature of certain things. It's not trying to be that deep per se, but George Stevens was in World War II and he saw how fucked up gun violence was. So he doesn't want this movie to just be the normal cowboy fair. He's not trying to make a statement with it, but the first time a gun is fired in the film, it's really late in the movie. And when it happens, like you said, he amplified the sound so it startles you. And it's not a surprise. You see the guy's about to shoot a gun, but it was not the same canned sound effects that always happened, you know, more or less in, in Westerns to that point he wanted to make that a forceful surprise where you're like oh shit that that, that guy's shooting a gun and I think it works and with the you know with the stunt, it just, it, it amps up the realism, or at least what we would think to be, well, at least what we would call realism in a movie, you know?
1: Like you said, the villain for this is is quintessential as well. I mean, you have this greedy land baron who's hired a bunch of mercenaries, basically, a bunch of outlaws to help him intimidate the locals. And he, you know, Jack Palance wears all black, which is a classic trope for the bad guys in movies, which is also severely impractical. Like, I can't, I can't wear an ounce of black on set when I'm working on The Walking Dead because- I agree, I would up. die in the heat and and it's like you know the fact that all these bad guys are like rolling around out in the sun on horses I'm like get the fuck out of here no way no fucking way wearing goddamn wool how could and you do leather
0: it? like yeah like I fucking yeah. shh, I'm a redhead it doesn't matter what color I wear in the sun I'm burning the fuck up but yeah let's not make it worse right <laughs>
1: <laughs> just sweating yeah, your balls off. I mean, something you've never seen in a Western is the hero just get like, hold on, guys. Hold on, I'm a little woozy. A little sun's getting to me. Hold on. I need some water. Oh, fuck. They're always so badass. But this movie has a great ending after Shane finally goes back to his his gun shooting ways. He takes care of all the bad guys. But at the end, because he kind of broke his morals, he decides to ride off into the sunset. And it's kind of a bummer. And he's riding off in the classic. You see, you know, you got the horizon, the sunset, and he's riding riding off and the little kid's screaming at him, Shane, Shane, come back, back, Shane. Shane.
0: (laughs) Well, there's a shootout and in the shootout, he gets two guys that he knows are there, but there's another guy that we in the audience know is up top and Shane starts to leave and the kid sees him. The kid warns him, Shane, look out. And he quick draws on that guy, but that guy shoots too. Then he's talking with the kid. Shane's talking with the kid after and the kid says, the kid touches his shirt below screen. We don't see it. And he goes, Shane, you're hurt. He got you. And he's like, oh, it's just a scratch you know, little Billy or whatever. Or Joey, his name is Joey. Joey, yeah. don't worry about it. He's like, but I got to go now. And he gets on the horse and he rides away. And there's actually debate. I mean, it is a quintessential riding. He literally is riding off into, I think it's actually a sunrise, but he's riding off into the sun, which is a quintessential trope of Westerns. But there's a lot of debate. And I watched real close to see if I could pick it. He might be dead. Some people say, and I've heard, I forget what movie it is. I want to say Samuel L. Jackson's in it, but there's a movie where they're debating that. And as he rides off into the sunset, he's not ignoring the kid, he's dead and just bobbing on the horse. And when you watch, the actor is super stiff during this silhouetted ride out. I don't know if I think he's dead or not. I like the ambiguousness of it. What do you think, Rumus? Is is Shane dead when he leaves or Shane lived to fight another day?
1: I hate movies that needlessly kill the hero to end with a stronger punch, which is a... Uh, this happens a lot in westerns where for no reason at the last minute the hero dies. For no reason. But I sure. think the reason he, they do it so often because back in the day, and I I can't remember if this movie is pre-code or in code or whatever, but there's the film code which says if you kill somebody, if you're a murderer, if you're a thief, you have to be punished for it. Either go to jail or be killed by the cops or by, you know, so him killing somebody might be the reason why they had to kill him. And they left it ambiguous so they're like, well, we don't really want to kill him. He's the hero of the movie so we'll leave it kind of vague. Vague enough to get past the code but also vague enough that, eh, you know, maybe the audience lives with it but i like to think he lives but knowing most westerns he probably does
0: definitely during the code it's like right in the middle of the code right uh 1953 shane because we'll talk about another movie that that took the code head on but we'll, we'll get to that one
1: just doing my research on this there were so many that i'm like shit he dies at the end shit that guy dies at the end fuck he dies at the end it's like it's a thing it's a real thing where it's like there's no justice and at the end the the hero gets it because you know he may have been a bad guy like shane we don't know but he's Killed a lot
0: of people. Right. That's true. We don't, we just know he's a gunfighter. We don't know any more than that, really. I think it's almost like a uh, a hyper moral martyrdom machismo thing because I feel like you and I, Rumi, we grew up in a generation where our heroes, at least cinematically in a masculine role, were Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Dolph Lundgren. Like it was those kind of shirts off muscle guys quipping while shooting an automatic gun. Yeah. And I think it was some of the moral code, like all those guys were good guys and they did good things for good reasons, at least, you know, theoretically in the movies. But the moral code, the moral importance of what they were doing was watered down. They were just fighting the bad army guys, whoever they were. They were Shit. fighting the terrorists.
1: When well, I was thinking about this just now, do you think Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dutch, in Predator, like that dude sh- killed women and children in Cambodia,
0: right? Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: oh, God. That just totally changed that movie for me. Like
0: <laughs> That he's morally ambiguous.
1: They brought him into the jungle to kill gorillas where they weren't supposed to. To be, and they happened to run into an alien, and he was the most, you know, qualified to fight this thing. But they brought him into a undercover secret ops because he's the best at going into areas he's not supposed to be and killing everybody there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> I'm having like a weird like existential. Anyway, we're not talking about Predator. Let's get back to Westerns.
0: Those are the male cinematic role models that our generation yeah. and maybe a little bit before and after have looked at. When you go back to these, this is, I think, the precursor to the action movie because. Because I think it gave men and young men something to aspire to, right? You put them in a hard situation. Now, the hard situation is not in the woods killing terrorists and also fighting an alien. It's you have to make a moral and also a physical choice, right? So-and-so is coming back to town and you have to decide, are you going to fight him? And that's a moral right or wrong decision, but also you're in physical peril. And I think a lot of these movies have that. A lot of these movies have that type of thing. And I think the dying at the end is just just that romanticized, like, how much more heroic can you be than to do something good for someone else and die on the cross? Like, I think that was a an uber sanctified, not rite of passage, but like trope. It was a trope. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I've done all the good I can do and now I have to expire because of my selfless sacrifice for you.
1: They literally became folk heroes. Like, a folk sure. hero came from this era that Westerns are depicting. The folk heroes, you know, you have cowboys, they were gunslingers, you know, while Bill Hickok, I think being one of the main ones is is this folk hero. They were real people, but their feats and their status were legendary. Like people made up stuff Mm. about them, told stories about them because they were bigger than life. They were larger than life characters. And I think that's why they're so good for movies because it's a good star power vehicle because movies are sold with movie stars. So you you had a good star power vehicle for some dude to be a badass in a Western. And that would, you know, if people dug the movie, that guy's a movie star. Are. Since you mentioned it, talking about fighting the guy who comes back to town, do you, you, you want to talk about High Noon? Ooh,
0: all right, man. High Noon, I got to tell you, that is my end-all be-all for Western movies. That's if an the alien one, huh? came down. If yeah, if an alien came down and said, listen, I need to see one American Western so that I understand what that genre is, no hesitation, that's the one. And it's also my favorite.
1: That's that's super funny because like, you do it to show an alien a perfect example. I would find something to fuck with the alien. I'd be like, here is Wild Wild West <laughs> starring- <laughs> (laughs) Starring one of our gods, Will Smith. He is one of the kings of the world, and you will have to speak to him later. Like, (laughs) like I would show them that and be like, see, we have giant spiders, so beware.
0: E.T. goes back to his planet and is like, "Uh, so in the Old West, as I understand it, they had giant robot spiders walking around. And now their whole planet would be like, all right, we understand that now, thanks to Rumi.
1: (laughs) And he's like, also, they could make steam-powered dicks? I don't know. It was movie. really weird (laughs) weird movie. He kind of lost me halfway
0: through. It's the the, the the alien would tell like the rest of his friends, he's like, don't buy it. But if it's on Netflix and you have an hour and a half.
1: He's like, you do see Selma Hayek's ass at one point. So, meh.
0: <laughs> I've actually never seen that movie. Should I have watched that for this episode?
1: Ooh, maybe, dude. But like, I'm sorry. Shitty Movie Sunday, that dude. Dude, you have
0: yeah, to. It's, it, it certainly seems like it's Shitty Movie Sunday material. Oh,
1: it is Shitty Movie Sunday. Perfect. This movie is terrible. But we're not talking about Wild Wild West. That's going to come in a later episode when we talk about about modern westerns. We're talking about the classics. High Noon, 1952, directed by Fred Zinman, starring Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, Thomas Mitchell. I mean, holy shit, already, the cast, you're like, oh, I've heard of those people, which means it's good, right?
0: I'm going to go on record right now and say dibs on Grace Kelly. She looked incredible uh... for 1952, so she's 21 in this role, and her new husband, Gary Cooper, is 51. Now, I think he's supposed to be younger in the movie, but how young could he he be? He looks older than we do. I'm almost 40. He certainly looks older than me. And dude, did you see, did you do research? Did you see that they had an affair during this movie in real life, what? the actors? Yeah. Well, according to what I read, at least, there was an Wait. affair that they like lasted for the movie.
1: Grace Kelly and Gary Cooper were hooking up while making
0: this movie, is what you're saying? According to what I read, yes.
1: Allegedly. Dish that gossip, girl. Come on.
0: Yeah. In People Magazine from 1952,
1: there was an article about it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. This movie movie if you guys don't know about this movie it is just note perfect so gary cooper plays the sheriff of the small town and the big heavy frank miller not to be confused with comic book heavy frank miller frank miller who gary cooper put away is coming back to town and he's coming back to to town to kill gary cooper there's no qualms about it the whole the movie opens with frank miller's gang starting to mill about the train station they're waiting for him to come back and then they're gonna fucking tear shit up and they tell gary cooper it's like they're trying to scare him. And the town is like, dude, you should get out of here. You got to leave. His brand new hot wife is like, we should leave. And he's like, I can't. I'm the sheriff. And the new, there's supposed to be a new sheriff and everything. The new sheriff backs out. The deputies, you know, look, like I'm, I'm obviously summarizing this pretty quick. But a couple people say they're going to help him and then very quickly back out. When they find out who
1: the bad guy is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's up. It, I mean, again, this is a movie we've seen before. We've seen it before and we'll certainly see it again. Many times after 1952. But it's this older guy and he has to make the decision. Do I leave with my new wife or do I stay and take my job seriously and come what may? And he has to stay. And there's a a whole ticking clock theme throughout. The music is very much metered to sound like a ticking clock. There's multiple shots of the clock. And it's just him waiting for Frank Miller to come into town for this showdown. And he keeps saying, I have to stay. I have to stay. And everyone thinks he's Crazy. He sends Grace Kelly on without him and she thinks he's crazy and she's all upset. It's it's just fantastic.
1: It's an amazing movie, and this is the one of the ones they always show in film school for a very specific reason. And it's because the guy who wrote it, uh Carl Foreman, I believe, mm-hmm. he wrote it, and while the movie was being produced, he gets called in front of the House of Un American Activities Committee, which was basically like when America got fascist. Hey guys, remember that? No? Okay. Well, back in the day during in the fifties. 50- they they were hunting communists like a witch hunt like literally dragging people to Congress the, the House of Un-American Activities Committee to accuse people of being communists and then while they were there they're like who else is a communist if you name names we'll let you go and it turned into this big thing and especially in the Hollywood community because the conservatives were targeting Hollywood as this like hotbed of communist activity so they were they were accusing all all the Hollywood beatniks and writers as being communists and he wrote this movie. And when you watch it, it makes sense because here's a guy who he's trying to stand up for what he believes in, in freedom of speech, trying to stand up for political ideals. And when he asks his friends to help support him, they all run the fuck away. Because when you were accused of being a communist in Hollywood, you were what was called blacklisted, which means you couldn't get a job. All your friends abandoned you and nobody wanted to be associated with you for fear of being accused of being a communist. So this movie is like a literal representation of that of a, a sheriff who is standing up for what he thinks is right, and all his friends and family kind of abandon him and leave him alone to fight this guy.
0: And I never, I never looked at it through that lens. Like I never thought about what was happening in America during that time of this movie being made. I never thought about it. And it is not only is it a certainly clear allegory, but it was a it was a willful allegory. They made it like that on purpose. And this movie actually divided. A bunch of people, a bunch of people on the crew supported or didn't support things in certain things, and relationships were made and broken because of this movie, which is really, really interesting to think. Like, not only is it like the high, in my opinion, the highest watermark of a genre as far as the content itself, but then when you think about the significance that the movie had on its its community, you know what I mean? Like Hollywood as a thing, this movie split Hollywood. This movie was important. It's really, really interesting. There's so much there, and it is for me, just as we just said, how Like, you know, these this genre is about the man, the man doing the right thing. There's a whole American aspect in some of these, which I'm not gonna talk about for this one, but this one is about doing the right thing. And, you know, I just had a baby. I've been married for a couple of years now. I love both my wife and my baby. I watched this movie a couple months ago, and the whole time I was like, fuck, if I was the sheriff of a town and it was my duty, my sworn duty to keep that town safe, and I knew some asshole was coming gunning for me, what is the higher priority? What's more important because ultimately I think that comes down to the decision. Do you value what you can do for your wife and your child, or do you value what you could do for the town that elected you, that 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 you know put you in a position? And that's fucking tough. Like that's that's a very hard black and white decision because you got to make it a black and white decision. It's very hard to do that. What would you do, Rumi, if you're you're Gary Cooper?
1: From the American standpoint, he chooses wrong. In the movie, he chooses the group, the larger picture mm-hmm. over his himself, which is the selfless act. And that's what, you know, that's what we would hope we do. But America is so about yourself and your family and, and a smaller group. We don't really look at the bigger picture, which is again, why it kind of has this like communist undertone kind of weaved into it. And this idea that he chooses for the greater good of everyone, he's willing to sacrifice himself. He doesn't know if he's going to die, but he thinks, yeah, I, I, there's a, there's probably a 60% chance or greater that if I have to get in a shootout with this guy, I'm going to die. And he chooses the, his duty to the town he chooses to be a potential martyr for his town as opposed to get his kid get his wife and leave
0: and again I think he's like, in that In it, to kind of paraphrase the movie's thinking he's choosing it's more important for him to be a good sheriff than it is to be a good husband you know what I mean because essentially he's choosing between the two here's what I would do
1: I would get my wife and kid I would leave but I would go figure out a better way to win the situation and come back better prepared
0: like invent the Machine gun, sure,
1: yeah. Or get get people who are like, oh yeah, I'll stand with you because like, if you show up and be like, hey, I'm a sheriff, I got run out of town by some assholes, and my town's a bunch of cowards. Do you guys want to come back with some uh, weapons and fuck some shit up? I would find some dudes who'd be like some ride or die bitches and be like, fuck yeah, let's go
0: let's go, go get shoot the wild bunch. Be like, guys, I, yeah, I want to hire you. Right? I need help.
1: I want to hire you. So like, I think I I think it's kind of stupid to die for a cause when there's a better solution. Like, obviously, I would do the right thing, but dying for no reason isn't the right thing. Being a martyr, I don't think, is is something that I'd be down for.
0: It's certainly not the most practical decision. <laughs> no, no, exactly.
1: Because what you're hoping to do as a martyr is you're hoping your death teaches people a lesson or inspires people to act. And people are fucking lazy. And if your town wouldn't even stand up with you to like show up to the gunfight, they're not going to like fight that guy afterwards because you died over it. They're going to be like, oh shit, you see that sheriff die? I'm not going out there.
0: <laughs> sheriff job's open, but I'm going to continue to be a lazy barkeep.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Oh man, Sheriff Rumi died screaming and pissing his pants. I'm not going out there to fight. This sucks. I wouldn't piss my pants. <laughs> uh, you can't control it, Rumi. I'd like to, like, unless you tied a rubber band around your dick, when you die, you shit and piss your pants. It's
0: really, dude, I always poop and peep before I play Nerf guns I'm sure if Frank Miller was coming to town to gun me down I would take a pee and a shit before he got there (laughs) I'd go in empty man
1: Grace Kelly would come in and watch you like fucking douching your butt out and you're like what you're like I don't want to die pooping myself that's I'm just making sure there's nothing where does douching
0: come into it I said I would pee and Oop.
1: No, you just have to clean out the whole thing, man. You're giving yourself you know, a little colon cleanse just to make sure there's no poop left. You do not want to die pooping yourself. I understand, Rumi. It's embarrassing that Grace Kelly saw you like that, but, you know, whatever.
0: <laughs> Luckily, Grace Kelly and I have that kind of relationship where we're, we're open enough to see each other douching and shitting. <laughs> This is interesting. We were talking before about the age difference between Cooper and, and Kelly. Yeah. Cooper was 51 here. So you have the heroic male lead is over 50 years old. Before and since, that is not commonplace. And I think no. this is a great story for that to happen. You know what I mean? It's almost- He had a child bride. Great. <laughs> nice. But it's you know it's very interesting that that is because the 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 I think the average age of the audience is younger than that, and usually you want your protagonist to identify, you know, you want your audience to identify with your protagonist. Yeah, and I feel like this is in an age in the '50s where they weren't necessarily making movies to package and sell them to the greatest audience. It's always been show business; they were always trying to make money, but yeah. they were trying to tell that story and showing and like because I think if he was in his prime, he would be more apt to fight Frank Miller, but because he's an older guy. You inherently kind of doubt, like, are you able to do this anymore? And a lot of the younger guys, including Lloyd Bridges, is in the movie. He's younger and he's yeah. known to be a good fighter, but he backs but he's out because he's it. looking out for number one. And I think that's like, that's important to think. Like, this guy is past his prime. He knows this shit's going to be harder than if this happened 10 years ago, but he's still down to do it. I just think, I think that I love this movie so much.
1: It's super good. So, what happens at the end, Rumi? Let's, let's spoil that shit.
0: I don't remember. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love this movie so much. I well, can't it's, remember it's, the end.
0: One of the coolest things about it is he's he does get a couple deputies and a couple people who say we'll stand with you, but then right at the zero hour they all back out. And he, Passave. I don't even think he begrudges them. I think he's like, okay, I get it. You have families. This is not your fight. I get it. And Frank Miller comes into what? town, <laughs> gets his boys. What?
1: If you are a deputy, it's literally your job to back the sheriff up. Just saying. I'm just saying.
0: Yeah, I That's agree. Job, but that, but. And that's a very important dichotomy to watch this movie yeah. to watch whatever Bridges I just said to watch Lloyd Bridges <laughs> Lloyd Bridges he theoretically has almost <laughs> the same responsibility legally as Gary Cooper yeah. does but he yeah. has no problem backing out of it whereas Gary Cooper looks at that different and we can all relate to that because we all take our jobs at a different level of seriousness, seriousness sometimes than the guy working next to you just some of us are not in you know per- moral peril of what we're doing for our jobs I think that's such a cool part of the movie Yeah, but uh, it ends when Frank Miller and his gang come in and they, you know, everyone leaves Gary Cooper by himself. And Gary Cooper takes on the whole army and he, he and he kills everybody. He wins, right?
1: He wins. And this is the, this is one of those movies. It's a big trope in Westerns where the guy's walking down the street and the, you know, that you have the the dust devil, the big, the big dust ball rolling down the street. Straw, what are those called? Dust devils?
0: <laughs> dust devils. Shit. Now you get, now because you said it wrong, it now fucked me up. Keep jibber jabbering <laughs> and I'll, I'll think of it.
1: He's walking down the street and everybody's hanging out their window and they close the, the, the curtain. Or they shutter the door, you know, close the door. They're all peeking, and that becomes a trope in a lot of movies where people are like, "Oh no, I can't, can't watch this." And they close the door, and it's like a little montage of the whole village like running scared and closing their windows and shuddering. Tumbleweeds
0: rolling by. Tumbleweeds.
1: Tumbleweeds. Yes, dust I'm devils. You know, dust devils. <laughs> dust devil is a little tornado that. Like no, dust devil is tornado. a small
0: handheld vacuum that you could vacuum your couches with. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maybe that too. But yeah, he wins. And then the whole town comes out to congratulate him and he like gives him a little like wag on the finger and is like, Shame, shame. He you know, you know what he does? He
0: throws he throws his badge to the ground and he steps yeah. on it. Cause he's like, I fucking did this. I did my job. My job is officially over. That's what it was, because it was his last. literally, it was his last day, or like his last day or his last week. And he was like, No, this is my job. I'm getting too old for this shit. There's a the whole thing. John Wayne was very pro on American House Activities Committee. He didn't want comments. He was against people who were fighting it and who were standing up to them. And he hated this, supposedly hated this movie because of the stance that was taken.
1: You know, he was up for the role. He was offered the lead role. He was offered the Gary Cooper role in this.
0: But and he, turned he was down, right.
1: He saw that it was an obvious allegory against blacklisting and uh, the the House of Un-American Activities. But he was like he actively and openly supported it because he was the head of the MPA at the time, the Motion Picture Association. President John Wayne during the fifties, and he was like not having this movie.
0: And it's it's pretty interesting that it caught. Like I said, it literally like broke and made relationships in Hollywood at the time. And you know, to have a cowboy movie that John Wayne speaks out vocally against, that's kind of damn in a certain light. I particularly yeah. don't care much for John Wayne and some of his cowboy movies. I mean, they're certainly classics, but they don't resonate with me personally. And I think this it's interesting you could see when you start to peel back the layers, you can kind of see why. But I always thought that was very interesting. And I guess he did another movie where he threw his badge on the ground. And when he was bitching about this one, people said, well, you did it too. He's like, yeah, but I didn't step on my badge. Gary Cooper yeah. steps on his
1: stepped on the badge that's like that's like people getting pissed when somebody like drops the flag on the ground like he was like he respected that position even though it was a fake position in a fake movie (laughs) (laughs) to make it even more interesting john wayne was offered the lead role in the film and he turned it down gary cooper won the academy award for his performance in this movie but he couldn't accept it because he was in europe at the time so he asked john wayne to accept the Oscar on his behalf, and even though Wayne hated the movie and refused the role, he said, when he accepted the Oscar, he said this, I'm glad to see they're giving this to a man who's not only most deserving, but has conducted himself throughout the years in our business in a matter that we can all be proud of. Now that I'm through being such a good sport, I'm going back to find my business manager, and agent, and find out why I didn't get High Noon instead of Koopa. So then he kind of sour grapes it, which is hilarious, because uh, you were uh, super against commies and hated this commie bullshit Western. (laughs) 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 And that was a terrible John Wayne accent, but you know, had to give it a little little twang. It sounded just like him, dude. Whoa, how did we get John Wayne from the dead? And it's like, it's okay, Rumi, I'm into VFX. I did a hologram.
0: Like you've never seen a John Wayne movie, Rumi.
1: (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen many, but while we're here, should we talk? I mean, how could you not do Westerns and
0: talk a little bit about John Wayne? Before, Before we do that, can I throw some high noon? Toss it, man. Let's do it. I got a couple interesting things about this movie. First, I mentioned before about the music, and the music was so important. First of all, it was the first song from a movie, the first movie in a song to win an Oscar that was in- from a non-musical. So It was the first non-musical Oscar song, which is pretty interesting.
1: Well, and you know who wrote the song was a Russian.
0: Is that true? Yeah. Do you know who performed the song? Who? John Ritter's father. Tex w- Ritter. What? Is that ridiculous or what? The song is called what? Do Not Forsake Me. The lyrics are from the point of view of, you know, the the, the Gary Cooper's character appealing to his wife. but. but. But I actually, when listening to the movie and where and when they play it, I feel like it's almost an appeal to the town as well, because everyone in the town forsakes him. And he's literally risking his life for the town. So it's funny because some of the lyrics are specifically like about a wedding day or like it says, um, uh, on this our wedding day, I have to face a man who hates me or lie a coward in my grave. Is this a movie where the song is about what's happening in the movie? Yes. And it was one of the first times that that happened, which is really interesting.
1: For a future episode, you and I have to do this. Kate and I have been doing a lot of research on finding movies that have songs that like play during the credits that are literally just telling you what's going on in the movie or
0: about what about the movie, yeah. This was one of the first times it happened, and also there is a, a common theme and a motif that runs throughout the movie. This song plays a couple times, but there's also themes from the mu- from this this theme song, like the musical theme is played multiple times during yeah. the movie, and it's the first. First time that they really use that almost as like I want to use the word motif, where it was almost showing like to imply certain emotions at a time. Not that music hadn't done that before, but not with a theme song that was so poignant to what was happening, you know, in the overall context of the film, which I think is pretty interesting. And the fact that fucking John Ritter's dad sang it is 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 pretty interesting.
1: That's crazy. Yeah, the, the person who did the best mu who did the music, the scoring, and the song is a guy named Dimitri Tiomkin, Tomkin, T-I-O-M-K-I-N. And he won two Oscars that year for the best music scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture and best music song in a motion picture. And that's pretty awesome. Do
0: not forsake me, oh my darling, dun, 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 dun. on this our wedding day. <laughs> Do wow. not forsake me, oh my darling. Are you John Ritter's dad? <laughs> <laughs> The other really interesting tidbit I found about this is, did you ever hear of a man named Sheb Woolley? Should I? Oh, yeah. You will have heard his scream in many, many, many movies.
1: Is it a Wilhelm scream?
0: Yes. He is the man who made the Wilhelm scream. It was not in this movie. The Wilhelm scream is in this movie, not necessarily by this actor. This actor played a, a smaller part in this movie, but he was in hundreds of movies. He made the Wilhelm scream years before, and it has been used since. And he was in a bunch of Westerns. His The actor's name was Sheb Woolley. Now, some people know him. No one knows him as the Wilhelm Scream. But he is the creator of the Wilhelm Scream. He also performed the song Purple People Eater.
1: No oh, knowledge bomb. Dude, you just dropped right? a knowledge bomb in the middle of my brain. That's incredible. Wait. Wacky and random as shit, right? So he was eaten by an alligator and did this goofy scream that everybody uses forever.
0: Yeah, he was a stormtrooper that fell off the Death Star. Here, I'll put it in right here. Ah! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. Okay. So there's the Wilhelm scream that was in a film library of sound effects because everybody pulls from the same like six libraries of sound effects and it gets used over and over and over again. And now people use it on purpose because it's hilarious and it's very recognizable. And they call it the Wilhelm scream. And we'll get into why later. We don't need to do that now. But that's crazy that he's in this movie and did Blind Purple People Eater.
0: Yeah. And that was the thing. Like I didn't put it on my list of facts to talk about until I saw Purple People Eater because I was like, wait, what the fuck? Like there's a lot. A of shit to be happening in one like it's a lot of random forrest gumpian shit to happen to one guy but yeah he performed purple people eater i'm not i gotta look and see if he actually came up with the song or wrote the song like, dang it fucking weird that's bonkers dude I- <laughs> one eyed one horn flying ah! <laughs> <laughs> If you guys don't know what the Wilhelm scream is, YouTube Wilhelm scream and you will know it immediately.
1: Yeah. Do your homework. So since we mentioned him and since he's been kind of, he's been a little bit of a villain in the background of this movie, but we mentioned John Wayne, who in most movies, he's like one of the quintessential Western cowboy heroes. He is one of the, like one of cinema's biggest heroes, John Wayne. Mm. I mean, you can't talk about Westerns without mentioning John Wayne. Uh, To be honest though, I'm not a big, big John Wayne fan. I've never not liked his movies but i'm not like oh yeah John. like for me I- i'm a- i'm an italian spaghetti western guy i love that shit because it's bloody it's weird mama mia ah, it's a good show but like john wayne <laughs> you-, you-, you cannot
0: that's your go-to italian <laughs> 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 Sorry. (laughs) It's a me,
1: Mario. Is that better? Is that the one you want?
0: It's more recognizable, but go ahead. (laughs) That was the
1: uh, production title for uh, Rick and Morty shows. So, yeah, John Wayne, this guy has been in tons and tons, like hundreds of movies. Literally, he's been in war movies. He played Genghis Khan once on <laughs> Painted Brown, which was weird. Mm-hmm. But like, he I think he's most known for being this great cowboy hero. And you know, his nickname was The Duke. And he was just in tons of them. But uh, three that I really like, and I'll throw these out here, is The Searchers, Rio Bravo, and True Grit. I mean, I think for me, my favorite one is True Grit. Because in that one, it's maybe the first time he played... Uh, like he always played a complicated hero but in True Grit he played a piece of shit who reluctantly became a hero which I kind of liked. it was neat to see him play that it was different for him at the time and thus they remade it
0: and I worked on the remake actually and that's actually why I watched the original and I haven't seen as many John Wayne movies as I probably should Rio Bravo is one that I really want to see that is really touted as one of the best and I haven't seen it yet that was on my short list to try to watch before we did this episode and I didn't get to it but he doesn't do a bad job he's good at this role both this this and war. He's been in a bunch of World War II movies as well, and he is that—it's antiquated now, but that gender-defining, generation-defining masculine hero character. Yeah, just died in the wool. Well, Pilgrim, I'm gonna come in here and be the hero you all hope for. And there's something to be said for that. It just doesn't resonate with me personally.
1: You, you do a pretty good John Wayne, roomy. I, I couldn't do it for shit, but you got—you got a decent John Wayne going.
0: Because he was a hero to men, just like me, Pilgrim. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) i do do pretty good for someone who hasn't seen very many movies although i'm doing impressions of impressions you know can
1: can you do say i'll protect you there little lady
0: well i'll protect you there little lady
1: oh thank you sir john wayne my hero
0: grace kelly get away from that communist cooper and come on over here I don't have the moral compass of those communists. We could leave on a wagon, little lady. Not worried about fighting Frank Miller. I'd rather be boning my 21-year-old wife.
1: (laughs) A wagon, my favorite form of transportation. (laughs) <laughs> what is happening right now? Rio Bravo. Yeah. 1959. I like well, I've this I've heard movie so much
0: good stuff about that one. I haven't yeah. seen that one yet. Um, you want to g- give us a quick rundown?
1: I- I'll give you the plot. So uh, it's a small town sheriff in American West. He enlists the help of a cripple, a drunk, and a young gunfighter in his efforts to hold in jail the brother of a local bad guy. So it's basic. It's very high noon. It's like, mm-hmm. he's here. He has arrested this guy, even though everybody's like, this dude's untouchable. He's like, you know, fuck that shit. So he arrests the, the quote unquote untouchable bad guy. Bad guy who is the brother of a bigger bad guy to to help protect him while all the bad guy and all his cronies start showing up. He hires a drunk, which is a classic Western character. Is the drunk? Who, sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Basically, alcohol or tequila is his spinach, and he can shoot like a motherfucker even though he's trashed. A cripple and a young gunfighter, and they're holed up in this. It's basically Assaulted Precinct Thirteen. I'm not gonna lie, it's basically that movie with a little bit of a different plot wrapper. But they're getting attacked from all sides, and it's it's pretty
0: cool. Good movie. That was. John Wayne in that movie, is he like how had to a, had a phrase this question without leading you um in, in in high noon one of the things that I like the most about Gary cooper's character who he didn't even name his name is Marshall Kane he uh, his name is will Kane but he's a Marshall the in that movie he doesn't want to be in this position he knows how perilous it is he knows he stands a good chance of dying but he is reluctantly being the hero which I think is one of the coolest things about that Shane is not necessarily as reluctant some of the other people we will talk about it's not there. I don't I feel Feel like they just step into that heroic role because it needs to be done. Gary Cooper, you can see it in his face that he's like, "fuck." Do yeah. you feel that in um, John Wayne and Rio Bravo is the same way, or is he like, "I'll do this because I'm the lead role," or is he is is he like, "I'd rather not be doing this"? <laughs>
1: The whole time, John Wayne's going around this town, like, buzz-killing everybody's good time by being such a hard-ass sheriff. Um, <laughs> this chick, there's this chick named Feathers who is, like, a card shark, and he knows she's cheating, and he's like, I won't arrest you for whatever reason, because she's hot. I don't know. Um, but, like, she protects him through the night. They hole up at the at the jail, and it turns into, like, this siege situation. People get kidnapped. There's a big shootout. At the end, John Wayne goes back to the the, the card shark Feathers, and she's, like, wearing this, like, skimpy, like, barmaid costume. Costume and she's like, I'm going to be singing at this hotel. And he's like, I don't approve of that. Wait, you got to say, I don't approve of anyone seeing you in that outfit unless it's me.
0: I don't approve of anyone seeing you in that outfit unless it's me.
1: So he's implying that they're going to get married and hooray, they, they get married. <laughs> that's, that's what you think movie.
0: marriage is like? <laughs> that, I mean, that's what John
1: Wayne thinks it is. But yeah, it's got Ricky Nelson in it, who at the time was a famous musician mm-hmm. in his own right. Dean Martin's in the movie, obviously one of the Rat Pack, you know, John Wayne is the old cowboy. It, it's a really cool movie. I love the setup for it. Dean Martin plays a drunk, which is kind of fun. Great John Wayne. Uh, His other ones are also really good. I mean, like we said, True Grid, he's got the eye patch on, which is a classic cowboy trope now. Everybody you know, has that character with the eye patch.
0: And that's a fun one, because that's more of, I don't want to say anti-hero, but it's more like a slightly morally ambiguous hero, where he is the good guy, he's doing stuff, but he's also a little bit of a dick. You know, where I think, especially John Wayne, is not usually thought of as that.
1: No, he's always the moral high ground. He usually is the company of the movie or like the rock of the movie and in True Grit he's kind of this old faded cowboy who is kind of a drunk Yeah, giving a shit.
0: young girl <laughs> a hard time. What about Searchers? I saw a lot of lists while researching for this that not only put Searchers up there but put Searchers at number one for Best American West.
1: Here's the problem I have with The Searchers is The Searchers is about a, a guy searching for a little girl who's been kidnapped
0: by Comanches. And you already saw that movie in the 1800s when you watched Kidnapping by Indians.
1: Yeah, right. I already saw that. American Civil War veteran inve- in- embarks on a journey to rescue his niece from Comanches. The- anytime you have a movie where the Indians are the bad guys, it's kind of tough because you know, we have a different perspective for it, I suppose. Where you're sure, like, Ooh. that's fair. But I mean, when you take the movie at face value and it's like, you know, they're just being attacked by all these people from all sides and you got to rally the wagons, like it's pretty cool, I guess. But like you have to compartmentalize that it. it's like you're on their land. You're basically trying to kill them off and it's pretty messy. Up. I mean, I know it's a part of history, but it, it, it is, it's a very bizarre thing to watch when the
0: Indians are treated as just savages. The Western genre is not the only time where that happens, right? I mean, and that, right. there's movies from today that 20 years from now we will think, like, oh, I can't believe we said that. I can't believe we did that. And I think that's just, yeah, that's interesting because I think movies are a timestamp of any given time period. You know what I mean? It's a a lasting impression. It's a photograph, if you will, a moving photograph of that time. So, in, you know, the 50s. 50s, 40s, 50s, it was acceptable to talk about and think about things like that. If you don't take it as a historical document or as a morality stance and you just try to enjoy it for the hour and a half, two hours that it is, I think that's a good one. And I remember the thing that sticks with me most there is his character, John Wayne's character, hates Native Americans because he's had some real rough experiences with them in the past. And I remember that performance. Performance being pretty striking that you know he died in the wool hates the Indians in that movie and I think that's really again it's like it's taboo to think that now and I'm in no way condoning hating anybody let alone Native Americans but I think it's a very interesting character portrayal where that is his motivation to get this girl back you know
1: the movie's really well made and the characters are really good and it's well acted all around it's also kind of weird because there's a oh what is that woman Patty Hearst it it has a little bit of that because they come in Find, that's, right. that's right. They find this chick they've been searching for, Debbie, and she's an adolescent, and she's living as one of the Comanche chiefs' wives, whose name is Scar. I roll. She tells <laughs> that she's become a Comanche and wishes to remain with them, and they would rather see her dead than live as an Indian, so they try to shoot
0: her. Yeah, John Wayne's like literally trying to kill her so that she's not an Indian. Maybe that's worth a watch. I don't think I've seen that since college, but it's definitely good. It just doesn't it hasn't hit me as much as some of these other ones that are worth watches but it is heavy and it's serious you know what I mean it's not it certainly it's really not serious the, uh, as High Noon is great but it's like a polished what's the word I'm looking for almost almost like a hyper- hyperbole of morals whereas this is not necessarily that at all this starts to be a little bit of a deconstruction of the genre where they're kind of showing the underbelly of cowboys
1: yeah well and, and it's one of those things like I think it actually would age interestingly because are you gonna look like when it was played he's a hero he's saving this girl from living as a savage but like like, when you watch it now, does it shine a light more on his problems? You know, does it does it shine a light on that dark area in a more interesting way than it would if you looked at it from the lens of like, oh, got to save this chick. What a hero. And again, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, so it is definitely worth a watch to kind of re-look at it from an adult perspective, which could be really interesting.
0: It's interesting, too, to think that the movie now might be just as good, if not better, than it was. But because of the cultural and, you know, social yeah. differences that we have now versus then, the movie could take on a completely different meaning and have a completely different tone and resonance, which I think is pretty interesting to think about that. A movie could be just as good because of how it is viewed, you know, 50 years after it's made than what it originally was, I don't even say intended, but just yeah. how it was received. You know, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, if you can look at it for its problems and instead of like what it's trying to portray, it's interesting. What We should, we should check that one out. But yeah, John Wayne. All right, man, we've been going for a little while, but I think we need to talk about one of my favorite, all-time favorite Westerns to wrap up our classics episode, Fistful of Westerns. I think this one, I think this one is, to me, one of the quintessential ones, and it's one of the last of an era. This is The Wild Bunch. This is...
0: Sam Peckinpah in 1969, right?
1: Sam Peckinpah. This guy is known for his violence. And we mentioned him earlier because he was inspired by the, the, the violence in Shane. And The Wild Bunch, this movie, is about some aging cowboys, some aging sort of outlaws going for one last score, right? And this movie is known for its violence. It's known for its editing. It's known for its music. It's known for this massive final shootout. But it is so well done and has so many themes that keep riding in. The opening of the movie these dudes are riding into town and they see these children playing with a scorpion that they've like put inside like a little uh, they like put sticks in the ground to make a wall around the scorpion and they're putting ants into the, like it's on an ant hill and the ants are killing the scorpion. And this is like real footage. It's pretty crazy to watch all the ants swarming the scorpion. And what you don't realize is you're seeing this now and you're like, oh, that's pretty gnarly. But it's an analogy for what happens later at the end of the movie during this massive shootout between them and the Mexican army.
0: This is the beginning of the end. The classic, me and Rumi at least are calling it the classic genre. This is 69. So we're already pushing it years wise of of where like, you know, the most Westerns are made. But Sam Peckinpah kind of wanted wanted to deconstruct the genre a little bit. And the main characters, the wild bunch, they are outlaws and they are not romanticized outlaws. Some of the violence has been taken as romanticized, but he wanted it to be a gut punch. He wanted it to be hardcore. These guys ride into town and they're dressed like US marshals and they start robbing a bank in the middle of a parade that then turns into an ambush by these bounty hunters that are hunting them. And there's this giant shootout. Women are getting killed. Some, multiple of these guys take women as human shields and you're like that's fucked up. Like it's okay to be, I mean it's okay. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they were outlaws, but that made it fun and it was almost like a, not a parody, but it was a good time that was being had, even though they were not good guys. They were Han Solo romanticized outlaws. Sure, exactly. You're right. That's a good that's kind of an apt uh, analogy, but or a comparison rather. But these guys are killing people. There's like people getting caught in the crossfire. They're purposely hiding behind people and they're robbing. And there's a very famous line at the very beginning during this thing where William Holden who plays the leader of this band of outlaws Pike. he's just and he does what a fucking performance man he said he lines them all up and he tells one of his guys to watch the hostages and he goes if they move kill them and walks away and you're like whoa I mean we've heard and this is 1969 this is not the first time anybody then has seen or heard stuff like that but not so brutal and so serious because he was there to rob that bank and it, or it was a train station yeah. really but he wasn't worried about you know I'd rather not kill people but if I need to rob this train and you're in the fucking way. Sorry. Nope. Nope. No problem. Ernest Borgnine plays his right hand man, and I just love. I
1: love Ernest Borgnine's oh, movie.
0: This is this is really for for William Holden and Ernest Borgnine. They just play this thing where William Holden, Ernest Borgnine, is his right hand man. He's his sergeant. He's his tool. Ernest Borgnine looks like looks at William Holden like he is the greatest. He is the boss. Numerous times he says, "I'll do what you say until hell freezes over," and he he is just down for whatever william holden says that's his boy and he will do whatever he says they do some shit throughout the movie they they rob a train in a great train robbery that was actually not even scripted it was just a blurb in the script and they made it into this whole almost dialogue free section where the train is puffing smoke (laughs) (laughs) like a heartbeat it's awesome and the tension amps up oh it's so good. It's shot beautifully. This has a big
1: aspect of stealing weapons, which becomes a it, it's another trope in, in Westerns, of stealing weapons to give to rebels or the army in Mexico, because there's the Mexican Revolution's happening. It's Pancho Villa versus the Army down in the day. And it's getting weapons to one side or the other is a big like aspect that appears in a lot of westerns. Mm-hmm. In Duck You Sucker, they're trying to get dynamite to the rebels. In this movie, they're trying to get weapons to the to the army, uh, the Mexican army, and you know, they get double Crossed, but, like, this train robbery to get the weapons is so cool. Really, really cool.
0: One of their gang, one of the Wild Bunch, is a Hispanic guy named Angel, and he needs to get some guns for his people. So, while double dealing and trying to get the best deal, because they don't give a shit who they're supplying with weapons, they're supplying what we as the audience know is the bad guys with weapons, but they're in for the money. They end up tossing Angel a couple cases of rifles for his family, and they're going to try to swindle the guys that they're buying from. They get found out, and they're like, give us Angel and the rest of You can go. And they do. They're like, you could take one of our guys if that means we're off scot free. Then they leave. And in this great climax, they're all whoring and boozing, except Ernest Bordenine, who's just like literally sitting outside of a building, just picking his nails, waiting. And the other guys, William Holden specifically, is like, fuck this. Let's go out. Let's go get him. And he knows that they're going to walk into a meat grinder. And he walks out. Ernest Bordenine looks up and he's like, fuck yeah. And they all just get up and they do this like improvised, you know, from production's point of view, improvised walk through the town where they're just slow getting more of their the wild bunch together and they just look at each other, they don't even have to say anything, and they know that they're going in to go do this. And it's just it is so fucking badass.
1: This big fight at the end, it's kind of this new technology versus the old west. These guys are all aging, fading cowboys, they live their life terribly, and like the cars that the the Mexican army uh generals and, and you know commanders drive around in are like modern cars, not horses and wagons. They have this gatling gun that shows up that they're you know enamored with and these guys walk through town they watch their friend who even though they've kind of been double crossed they're still his his guy and um the the Mexican general slits his throat and then they just shoot him bam no words just shoot the Mexican general everybody's watching and Ernest Borgnine starts laughing and they just look at each other and they're like let's do this and it turns into like a 25 minute uh. just gun down blood bath they had so many extras, and they would literally load them up with squibs, fire the squibs off, take them around the corner, duct tape them with painted tape over the clothes again and send them back out to just do-do-do-do. So by the end, when the guys are getting shot, their clothes have been literally taped together so when they get shot it's even bigger than it was last time instead of like a tiny hole. It's like a massive hole in their back because it's all the times they've been shot. So like it just looks bloodier and bloodier as the movie progresses.
0: And this shootout, this is what you alluded to before. The Wild Bunch are the scorpions and these hundreds of army soldiers are the ants. And it is a Massacre, and they knew walking in that that's how they knew they were not going to get out and they were like Bucket and you could see it in their faces they're like Bucket. Now Sam Peckinpah is credited with ushering in this new wave of of depicting violence. He was not the first but this is one of the first that was noted to use slow motion in action sequences. So there's a yeah. the beginning scene so a guy on a horse gets shot and he falls with the horse slow motion through a department store window and it's, it's super cinematic and again it had been done yeah. before this, but this is one of the first times that we're seeing it on a wide scale, and done so beautifully. And this shit at the end with this shootout, uh, sometimes it's been nicknamed um, the shootout at Bloody Porch, and it's just there's so many times they have a World War I era machine gun that the bad guys have it first, they kill the guy who's on it, one of the wild bunch gets on it and is mowing people down, he gets shot, another wild bunch guy gets on it and just shooting people. There's so many reaction shots, so many bloody bullet hits, so many people hitting the ground and slow motion. It was something that really hadn't been done before. And uh, Stan Peckinpah really knew his way around not only shooting, but editing. That scene supposedly contains over 300 edits in like minutes of action.
1: It's massive. And it's really interesting because in our next Western episode that we do, we're going to talk about spaghetti Westerns. And spaghetti Westerns were in response to the popularity of American Westerns, but they're kind of like what Hammer Horror was doing to Universal Monsters. They were in color, bright, vivid blood, really Violent, lots of sex, really like just upping the ante of sort of the salaciousness of the genre and sort of redefine the genre. And there's a big chunk of time at the late fifties, all the way through the seventies and and on. Like they carried on for a while, and this movie was kind of peck and pause. Like I don't want to say love letter, but kind of a farewell salute to the genre. He's like, look, cowboys have been done to death, and what he didn't realize is he almost gave it another injection of life. Like he put it on life support and then like took the paddles and like. Too clear. Poof. And then the genre was back because this movie was like, holy shit. And after it, in the late, like early 70s, this is 1969, the early 70s into the 80s, like Westerns became kind of dark and nihilistic and gnarly. And it's all because of this movie, I think.
0: This is like the Dark night Returns of cowboy movies, yeah, right?
1: He was doing this in response to the violence of the spaghetti Westerns. And because of it, reinvigorated American and made spaghetti Westerns go even darker. It's pretty wild because spaghetti Westerns were already a gritty reboot of of the, you know, Roy Rogers, John Wayne movies. You know, yeah. the, the spaghetti westerns are really gritty, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. But this movie is so interesting. It ends with basically all of them getting gunned down except one of the ones who uh, had been left behind, this guy Thornton. He shows up and he collects their corpses and collects the bounty on his own crew's head and uses that bounty to help
0: the the Mexican rebels. I honestly do feel, and the more I've, I've looked into it and kind of researched it, the western, I do believe, was the precursor to the modern action film. This is... Is like that fucking fish that crawled out of the water and started to walk. This is that between those two genres. You could see the evolution here where they start to use action movie techniques as well as tropes.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about it more as we get into the Italian ones. But like this is like I think one of the quintessential action movie westerns, and it ends. You know the ending. Like uh, you could watch that fight scene over and over again. It's unbelievable,
0: and it's on it not just on a technical level, but on a story level. I love the the pulling back the veneer of cowboys and being like, they weren't all Roy Rogers. There's actually a quote the author of the the original story, Waylon Green. He said, I always liked westerns, but I always felt like they were too heroic and too glamorous. I'd read enough to know that Billy the Kid shot people in the back of the head while they were drinking coffee. And when you think about that, that's what this movie is. This movie wasn't standing up for the cattle ranchers who couldn't help themselves. This movie was walking up and shooting people in the back of the head while they were drinking something. Because all of the characters in this movie are shitty there's no good characters there's no female I mean there's one or two females but they're not important character there's a female that's a kind of a catalyst to one of the the characters angels actions but she's not really got into as a character we don't know her it just is gritty it doesn't feel forced and it's it I don't again I don't think it's the first time we've seen a, a questionable cowboy but it definitely is one of the coolest best hardest times that we've seen questionable cowboys and this this movie was my absolute favorite until, like I said, two, three months ago when I saw High Noon. And I want to like Wild Bunch more than High Noon because High Noon is this, you know, romanticized, unattainable image. I It just is so fucking good and it, it leaves me feeling so good. This movie is just so badass, though, uh, Wild Bunch so good. If you guys haven't seen this one. It's a must-watch yeah, for this sure. Yeah, is,
1: this is a must-watch. And so, some interesting things. The way he edited the opening sequence, the shootout during the parade, it was originally 21 minutes and he's like, I have to cut this down, but I want to keep all the good pieces. So, he edited it down to a five-minute montage and the way it's cut, where it cuts to somebody getting shot, they start to fall off the roof, it'll cut to them firing some more, cut back to the guy falling, cut back to people shooting some more, show the guy hitting the ground. The creative intercut montage, the action montage, became the model for the rest of the film, and it's a technique that changed the way movies were edited from that point on. Like, it is a groundbreaking, editorial-wise. It also is one of the first R-rated westerns, because the MPAA during this time established a new set of codes, and it's one of the first films to satisfy an R-rating and be designated as a rated R film. And without this system in place, it would have been X-rated. And, like, a lot of the Italian films got away with this, because they were imports, they were shown in art houses, they, you know, they, they were shown without rating. Rated, they were X-rated. They never made it to America, but this was one of the first ones in America gets an R rating. It's able to be as violent as it was. It has that impact. And Peck and Paw. This guy was another one of those crazy-ass directors. He shot thousands of feet of film, hundreds and hundreds of take. At one point, he didn't like how the squibs looked, so he grabbed a real gun and would like fire it on set and like shoot it into walls and stuff. And I just, heard like, that too. Unhinged director. Yeah, he didn't like the way the wall squibs looked. And he's like, "That's not what I want. That's not what I want." He grabs a real revolver and starts shooting into the wall. Pop, 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 and he's that's what I want. And everybody's like, oh shit, I guess, I guess we got to gotta do that now. He also changed the way sound editing was done because at Warner Brothers, all the guns, no matter what caliber or size or type, they all had the same like 10 sound effects for guns. And he went and recorded all new sound effects so that the different guns that each person shot had a different sound to it, which I think is pretty impressive and an intention to detail that just makes the, I don't know if I would personally notice, but it enriches the effect overall.
0: It also lends something to be said of like... Um, I don't know what you call it, but like a group of guys movie, like when a bunch of guys come together, because in The Wild Bunch, there's- It's
1: a posse yeah, movie.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. That's movie. what it is. You have like the leader, you have the right hand man, you have the dissenter who's always bucking the leader. There's usually two that are related. You know, it's like pretty cool. Like there's a, a bunch of that there's shit. There's the
1: crazy guy. You always have the wild card. The one guy who's yeah, like- Yeah, he, You he, he get a little liquor in him, he's going to be a total punk.
0: And I think when you have that, th- those things, yeah. you, you need visual as well as audio cues to each of those guys, right? So they all have, in this movie, they all have very distinct clothes. They all look like cowboys, but each guy has a different wardrobe accessory that's specific to them. So a couple of them have very distinct hats. Same with their guns. They have different guns. couple guys are rifle or shotgun guys. couple guys are, uh, you know, six shooter guys. Fucking cool, man. It's it's just, it's so damn cool. It's fucking great movie. Peck and pa was the, the guy to direct that one.
1: For sure. I mean, that guy was in America one of the godfathers of, of bullet ballets and making violence like look cool on films. So, man, we're we're hitting pretty long on this one. So, like we said, we're going to split it up. And I know we missed a shit ton of movies. I mean, there are so many westerns. I mean, we didn't even talk about Magnificent Seven, but I think we should touch that later. In our next episode, for uh, a few westerns more, we are going to talk about Italian westerns. We're going to talk about the spaghetti westerns. We're going to talk about some of those weird genre ones that don't really fit anywhere. And then we're going to even have a third one where we talk about the modern westerns and we talk about things that have Western DNA, like the Mandalorian, which I know you guys are all super excited to hear Matt and I geek out about the new Disney Plus Mandalorian show.
0: If you haven't watched it yet, watch it right now so that when we spoil stuff, you're with us.
1: Yeah, you'll be ready to go and you'll know all about what's happening. This is amazing, dude. I'm having a blast. I could seriously go on and on and on. We are definitely going to touch the Man With No Name trilogy, the Dollars trilogy in the next episode. Do not worry, guys. I know everybody's like, what? What about Clint Eastwood? You didn't talk about Clint Eastwood. Like we said, there are so many movies. What are your favorite Westerns? What are your favorite classic Westerns you let us know hit us up on social media Facebook Instagram and Twitter at launchpadpod and our website launchpadpod.com in the meantime Matt and I are going to record some more we're going to have a lot of fun stuff we don't know when the next Western is going to come out the next Western episode is going to come out but it will be soon we'll keep your ear tuned to your favorite podcatcher for more launchpad podcasts and our next Westerns episode dude this has been super fun
0: yeah dude and I knew it was going to be a good conversation but uh, it's one of those things that like sometimes we know going into it but this one's snuck up on us. We could talk about this for fucking hours. I didn't realize that.
1: Dude, we absolutely could. Like, I, I'm I'm, almost like, shit, we didn't talk about Magnificent Seven. And that's I know. a great one. But I think if you talk about Magnificent Seven, you start talking about S- Akira Kurosawa. So and we're going to get films. into that
0: regardless. But yeah, dude, there's there's so much. There's so much to talk about. So keep it here. We'll also be peppering in some other topics. What have you been watching and stuff in the middle of that? But some more interviews
1: coming up. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff. Dude, still big shout outs to everybody who are still pushing that Dolph Lundgren interview and the cool pictures we did. I saw a guy today, man. This guy on Instagram, he his whole like feed is just basically versions of that cover. That cover alone. Um, it's this gentleman named Native Son of San Diego, and his entire page is different versions of that cover that people have done. Here's one, the Predator shooting a Xenomorph. Uh, here's one uh, where Rocket Raccoon is shooting another cartoon raccoon. Here's one where Deathstroke is shooting at. Nightwing, here's one where Mr. Freeze is shooting at Batman and we are on his page and he is super pumped about it.
0: Th- does does he make these pictures or he just does them?
1: No, he collects them. He curates all these images. You know, here's Harley Quinn shooting Batman, here's an Overwatch soldier soldier 76 shooting at Widowmaker. You know, like all these really funny images and it's awesome to be at the top of his list
0: right now. That's super cool.
1: Well, Rumi, what do you say? Let's let's blast this off, partner. Wait, let me try that again a little bit. Well, let's blast this off, partner.
0: That's pretty good. That's that. Was not- Bad. Well darn too,
1: and I'll just work on that.
0: Yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'd you'd be, be the, the miner, kind of I'd, cowboy.
1: <laughs> I'd be the miner with the flipped up hat with the arrow in the front. Get to pal, let me get some of that whiskey you got there, huh? <laughs> 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 what do you say, Rumi? We should blast this thing off. Darn tootin'. Huh?
0: ha! Like we're sitting around a fire eating too many beans. I was gonna say, that's, that's the definition right there of darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, then, there. We've been the Rocketeers, and we are out. Sayonara. Woohoo!
0: <laughs> Sayonara.
1: Westerns are based off of samurai movies, Rumi. Didn't you
0: know? <laughs> didn't you know? <laughs> Oh my God.
1: <laughs> Adios, muchachos.
0: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Look at. We have a look at.